Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. All right. So welcome everyone to the Mindfulness Teacher Certification Program broadcast. My name is Christy Peoples. I am a producer here at Sounds True, and it is my delight to be your host for this session. In this session, I am excited to welcome our guest teachers, India Harville and Jill Satterfield. They'll be discussing teaching with sensitivity to people living with disability, chronic pain, and illness. India Harville is an African-American, femme, queer, disabled, accessible dancer, choreographer, somatic body worker, and disability justice educator. The unifying thread in India's work is facilitating people working with their bodies as a vehicle for personal and collective growth and transformation. India views the body as an often underestimated pathway to decolonizing ourselves so that we can more deeply embody social justice principles. Jill Satterfield is an MMTCP mentor and co-leader of the Optional Affinity Group for People Living with Disability, Chronic Pain, and Illness. For more than 30 years, Jill has taught embodied mindfulness and meditation internationally. She founded the School for Compassionate Action in 2002, and that's a New York City-based teacher training and service organization that offered meditation and somatically-based practices to people with comorbid conditions of trauma, chronic pain and illness, disabilities, and addictions. The SCA model was brought to Europe and to the UK, as well as adopted for UCLA's mindfulness awareness trainings as applied embodied mindfulness in 2017. Thank you so much for being here and welcome India and Jill. Thank you, Christy. Um, it, it's, it's my pleasure uh to be here with everybody it's um it's a pleasure and it's a little daunting as well i'm just going to say that out front because india and i have done our best to be alchemists and distill many years of experience and practice and teaching into uh, what we consider to be a short amount of time so we're hoping that it will be very practical and accessible 
and helpful for you. And I'd really like to thank um, a couple of people before we begin. And that's Anne Cushman, um, who's always been, you know, always been the entry point for so many of us to do more and to bring in our um, experiences in our, our special experiences in our, in our interests into larger and larger um, groups. And for Tara for in, inviting this in and also for Alicia in holding us so supremely well and with organization and wisdom, uh, couldn't have done it without any of these three people. So, uh, and all of the people at Sounds True and MMTCP, um, obviously there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes here. So I'll pass it to you, India. Oh, and I want to thank India. We've had a great time. <laughs> thank you so much. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. We're really excited to be here with you all, and we feel deeply honored. And I'll also send a big thank you to Alicia, Christy, Indigo, and the whole Sounds True team, because there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to make this happen. And we just like to lift up that invisibilized, often invisibilized labor. And also it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Jill, and doing this work with you. So I'll pass it back to you. Thank you. Uh, we wanted to start with a, a short practice just so that we can gather together. This will be five minutes or less, just so you know, in placing yourself in a, in a way that's comfortable for you for around that amount of time. When the time is up, I will draw you back towards the screen with my voice. Okay. So whether you'd like to start with your eyes opened and then gaze softly cast down or your eyes closed, turn your awareness internally. If you can, Soften all around the eyes and behind your eyes. And welcome your body and your heart, mind to practice in union with all of us together online today. Maybe you sense the energy of being virtually together. We're coming in from all over the world in real time and then some joining later. Let's see if we can settle by sitting or standing. Maybe you choose to lie down. Choose the form or the shape of your body that supports you in being receptive. You might invite your awareness to the weight of your body, sensing weight, sensing gravity, and connecting to the earth, our home, metaphorically, majestically, imaginally, just allowing your, your body, heart, and mind to meet the earth in any way that's helpful for you. 
And then sense your own inner dignity, your humanity, your willing heart, your rightful place to be here and now. And allow your outer body or your shape or your form, your physicality to shape around what you feel and what you know. Soften wherever you can, as much as you're able to, to allow your body and heart and mind to receive. Receive being awake and alive and together with a large group of people with similar intentions, like-hearted and willing minds. Rest with this as best you can, just for now. If you'd like to take a couple of deeper breaths or squeeze your hands together, if that's helpful, invite yourself to gather back to your screen in any way that's beneficial, taking that time. And as you open your eyes again and take a look at the screen, See if you can look from inside yourself. And as we gaze outwardly at the screen, whatever it is that you're seeing, know that each of these rectangles represents a very full, vital human life. So we see ourselves represented in this sort of rather flat way it's good to remind ourselves that there's so much behind what it is that we're seeing, that we know and maybe will know, but what we can know, I think, is the, the generosity of heart that has brought us all together in this program. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Jill. It really helped settle my nerves a bit. Um, Jill and I thought it was important that we share a little bit about our backgrounds and our stories and how we came to do this work. And so before I start with that, I'm going to share my access needs for today. An access need is anything that someone needs to be able to fully participate in an activity. 
And I'll talk more about access needs and access check-ins later in the presentation. Uh, I have a service dog. So if you see me looking like this, my dog is communicating some information to me. Otherwise, right now, I think my access needs are met. So my story. I'm someone who lives with several chronic health conditions and disabilities. You can't always tell that I have that experience just by looking at me. So I'm very young. Even though I'm 41, I've had three surgeries for a brain aneurysm. I've had a stroke. I live with an autoimmune disorder, hemiplegic migraines, chronic pain, and I'm also neurodivergent. And I mentioned all of this at the start as a reminder that you don't know just by looking at someone what they've been through or what they're going through, right? Now I identify as disabled, plus I have a wheelchair or a scooter and a service dog, so it makes me more visible as a disabled person. But that's not always been the case. I've been chronically ill my whole life, but I didn't identify as chronically ill or disabled in my younger years. Largely because I had internalized the idea that as a black woman, I needed to be as perfect as possible to survive inside of white supremacy and overcome any challenges I had privately. I learned that from my parents who learned it from their parents, right? So I was busy living my life that way, compartmentalizing my illness and exploring my life. I was teaching massage. I went to graduate school. I was doing research on fascia. Um, and I was pursuing my passion of dance. So I was teaching and dancing and performing uh, up to six days a week. But all of that shifted for me around 2011. And that's when I started having some really bizarre and scary symptoms. I was intermittently paralyzed on the right side of my body. I was having altered consciousness. I was having speech difficulties. My limbs were curling and painful. I was dizzy. I was having seizures. It was really a nightmare. And no one really understood what was happening to me. And my doctors were telling me, it's all in your head. Go get some other kind of help. We can't help you. But when I sought out therapists and psychiatrists, they also said, we're not so sure this is our domain. We can't help you either. And I felt tremendously isolated. And that's an important part of my story. Eventually my health got so bad, I couldn't get out of bed for several months. And after some time and against my doctor's wishes, and I really think this saved my life. I was like, I gotta figure out how to get back to dance. And I got a manual wheelchair. That wheelchair felt like freedom and joy. It got me out the house. I wasn't worried about falling all the time. And of course, it got me back into dance class. So I'll take a moment to say I'm not a meditation teacher, but I have been a meditator since I was a child. My mother was a meditator and my grandmother as well. And I do consider myself a very spiritual person. So at this time in my life, around 2011, my new age spiritual community did not know how to hold me during this difficult time. I was bombarded with people telling me it was my fault and that if I really wanted to get better, I would manifest it. Or if I put my mind to it, I could get better. And it just wasn't working for me. So I was already beating myself up so hard because I was sick and then because I couldn't heal myself. So I had a lot of shame and humiliation and actually a lot of anger 
And that started being really directed back at myself. And I realized, I don't think this is the recipe for my healing. In fact, I think this is the recipe that's adding to depression and it's quite harmful. So I made the painful decision to leave that spiritual community. It's okay, I found a new spiritual home. But at that time, my spiritual haven became the world of inclusive dance, which is dance for all kinds of bodies and minds. And when I say all kinds of bodies, when I say body, I mean body, mind, heart, like all of this, everything that comes with you, your full being. So if I say body and you don't hear mind and heart, just know that that's in there as well. But between inclusive dance and disability justice community, I found my spiritual path again. So I tried many systems of inclusive dance. And when I came into danceability, I finally had an experience in my body and in my nervous system that everything that my body did was not just okay, but it was also welcome. It could add value to a space versus being a problem or being inconvenient. And that was something I needed to feel in order to generate that for myself. It actually created the spiritual container I needed to deepen my self-compassion, to cultivate right speech, and to make space without judgment to be with what is. And that's a practice. It didn't come automatically. I have to work at it. I continue to have to work at it. And so repeating those experiences became very important to me because the world doesn't often mirror that back. And I wanted to make sure that other people like me could also have this, those types of experiences. So all of these experiences are what has led me to become a teacher of disability justice and inclusive dance and somatics. So with a few of my colleagues, we gathered with deaf folks and neurodivergent folks and blind folks and chronically ill folks, people living with chronic pain and all kinds of other disabled communities to create some guiding principles rooted in disability justice to guide how we teach dance, how we teach meditation, how we teach yoga. And that's what brings me here today. I think of this work as a reclamation of our bodies and all of our bodies. And again, this whole total body thing, it's a reclamation of our humanity. And it's an opportunity to learn compassion towards ourselves and towards one another. So I wanted to just open and share that journey and that story, and I'll pass it to Jill. <laughs> I, I've heard India's story a number of times, and I, I, you know, it's just always incredibly moving and deepens my appreciation uh, for you, India. Thank you. We, um, we debated about how much time we would take to tell our stories, even if that we thought that that was important and we did decide that it was. And um, I tried to insist that I had longer because I'm older and my story is longer, but that didn't quite work. So I'm going to shrink down uh, a lot of decades into, you know, a manageable bite size, hopefully. Um, my story is quite long because it started when I was 19 years old. And I haven't really told too many people about like the full uh, story, uh, my story in the fullest. 
I've been reticent to do that because I didn't want to be known as someone that's experienced all of these things. And that comes from a lot of places, you know, our cultural conditioning, et cetera, but also not really wanting to be completely vulnerable. So this is the largest amount of people I've ever told at least this amount to. And um, it really makes me appreciate the vulnerability of being real. Something actually that Jack's tried to help me with. <laughs> so starting at 19, I was happily ensconced in um, an art school in New York City. And all of a sudden, I experienced this very sudden uh, and acute sharp pain in my abdomen. And I hadn't really ever been sick, you know, aside from the colds and flus that we get when we're younger. And so I, I, you know, confounded me and I felt like, wow, this must be some sort of a mistake. You know, why is this happening to me? I'm perfectly happy. Uh, my body has always worked well enough. And, um, and I immediately went into assumptions like somebody's going to be able to help me and fix it. And it won't take that long. It's got to be really simple. Um, well, figuring it out exactly what my issues were, and there were several, but that figuring out took, uh, over 40, 30 years, let's say. Um, and in the meantime, I had 12 exploratory surgeries. I've had three major surgeries. Um, over the last 40 years, I've lived in chronic pain or periods of chronic pain. So Chronic pain is, is um, defined by pain that lasts six weeks or longer. So I've had per periods of it uh, lasting different lengths for over 44 years. Um, I had a Tibetan teacher early on in my practice um, trajectory, let's say, who kept trying to get me to tell everybody what I had been through. And really wanted me to share what I had learned, at least especially internally in the subtle body. And I just couldn't get myself to do it. But he would say, you know, nobody, nobody's going to know what you've been through because you look okay. And that is an integral part of my story. And, and I believe it's partially what India shared as well. So for 17 years, at least, I was told that the pain I was experiencing was all in my mind. And, you know, and then tie that in with art school. So there was this like, mm -hmm, go home sort of attitude that that I would get a lot. Um, but I I was told I looked fine. I looked healthy. And um, mainly there was nothing physically enough physically wrong with me to warrant the pain that I was describing. So when I would ask, um, well, what do I do about my mind? I would get like a blank stare or a shrug. Um which really left me nowhere to go, but I, you know, I would continue to ask, but sort of quietly because I was brought up to rise above and ignore, um, put a smile on my face, not ask for help, to be independent, um, take care of myself, not share family information, not certainly not share personal information, uh, and um, most of all, not to complain. So some of you, this might remind you of something, which is it's a typical cultural conditioning of white privilege in the United States. And I have to say I embodied it. 
So that kept me at bay. I still would complain and try to find out what was going on because the pain was fairly incessant. And after suffering with the pain um, for many years, I finally decided to go up to Yale Pain Clinic. And I thought, these are the gods of pain. They're going to know. They're so smart at Yale. They're going to know exactly what to do. So I went up there. I was seen and um, what they told me they could do was just absolutely devastating to hear because I felt like this was my last chance. <clears throat> and what they told me was that they could do nerve blocks and but because of where the pain was located in my abdomen, it could cause paralysis. Um, and neither of those things did I wanna have to go through. So I decided, okay, well, I've got to help myself. Um, I've got to get to know my own mind. I really didn't know what else to do. So I found some meditation classes and I started taking meditation and I loved it. Um, and then I actually, I wrote away for a catalog. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. So I, I, uh, I, I did a couple of retreats. I did two retreats before I met my primary teacher, Ajahn Amro, but since then, I've practiced on over 150 retreats of various lengths and um, over the last 30 years. And I think it's, well, I, I know it saved my life in many ways. But back then, when I first started the Insight Society or the Insight um, Meditation Culture, let's say, at, excuse me, at, at IMS, where I was mainly going, Insight Meditation Society, where I was mainly going, was still fairly firm that when we meditated, when we practiced, that we were sitting on a cushion still, you know, fairly still. They were very careful not to sniff, swallow too loudly. Some, some of you might remember that. Um, not to disrupt our neighbors, you know, as much as we could uh, handle. And, and some people sat on chairs, but generally they were older. And since I was I thought of myself as being younger than I actually was. I wasn't going to let myself sit on a chair. So I sort of suffered through many, many years uh, of doing my best to sit still on a cushion. I could do it fairly well, but um, with a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain inside. So what I would do is I would take some of the practice periods and I'd go into my room and I do restorative postures, yoga restorative postures. And I would meditate in those poses for sometimes 30, 40 minutes. Um, and it started to really help. I mean, it really did help actually right away. And so I was um, fortunate. I got to know my primary teacher, Ajahn Amaral, fairly well. And long story short, I, was I told him about this. And I said, you know, I think this might be helpful for other people on retreats who aren't used to sitting for such long periods of time or might have you know a condition in their body that doesn't warrant sitting for long periods of time maybe i could show them some restoratives and some stretches that that could help and he was completely into it and so we uh were the first people to bring mindful movement to spirit rock and insight meditation society that was a long time ago and um Yes, we were an unlikely pair. And yes, we did get some flack. <laughs> and we got a lot of sideways glances. But nonetheless, we persisted. And um, so I'll finish up a little bit by saying my last surgery was fairly recent. It was six years ago. 
And after all the other surgeries and all the pain, I thought, well, okay, that's a chapter of my chapters of my life. And, and now I'm okay. You know, I kind of almost thought I'd gotten over it. You know, like I'd put my time in, <laughs> I'd suffered enough. Uh, not true. So I got a phone call one day, you know, after some symptoms, I got a phone call from a doctor that said uh, that my um, mitral valve needed to be repaired because a virus had burned it. So, um, you know, of course, nobody's delighted to get that kind of news. But what was interesting is that I was oddly up for it. And all these decades of practice in silence and in community, you know, in all the different varieties of practice centers and practices I've done by myself, um, they showed up. They just showed up. And they were so deeply embodied that I didn't have to try, I didn't have to try to get my practices, you know, to support me. Um, I had really embodied, you know, trying to be with the truth of things and, and the way things are. So of course a body gets sick and that's what was happening again for me. And, and most importantly, I developed this relationship and this is, uh, India alluded to this and mentioned it. it it's, this took time, but I had developed a really good relationship with myself and in between my body and mind, body, heart, mind. That took a while, right? But it was there. And I can't tell you how helpful that was because I was able to take incredible care of myself without pity, uh, without anxiety. You know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't fun, but I was okay. So it deepened, I have to say, it really deepened my well a lot. And all this time I've been teaching. So I've been teaching about 35 years and Originally, I wanted to teach at-risk communities, and, and I started trainings to teach others to do that because of the transformational aspects of our practices. And I wanted to share with people that may not ever wander into a yoga center or a dharma center or, you know, even think that this is too crazy, too woo-woo. So I actually went into hospitals and different kinds of centers, especially in New York City, um, you know, to see what I could do to help others, to empower them with language that felt accessible and practical and, um, you know, for them. <laughs> so I, I, I share all that because I think this is, I truly believe that this is what this program is for, is for us to take our own experiences and to go into communities that we care about and to do our best to support them and meet them where they are, you know, um, so we, I share my story mainly for that, so that we can start to open uh, our arms of inclusivity to bring in all kinds of communities, and, and today, including people with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and chronic pain. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Jill. And I feel like we took some time with that because these stories don't get told and a lot of this gets hidden around shame and those types of things. So we really wanted to lift some of that up. And now I wanna talk a little bit about why we think addressing accessibility is important. So we know that one in four people in the United States are living with a disability. 
Um, we know that the baby boomers are aging and as they're aging, they're experiencing more chronic illness and more disability themselves. And the rest of us are following suit depending on which generation you live in. And of course, there are many people who don't identify as disabled and who would not um, show up inside of these types of surveys. And unfortunately, right now, we're in a mass disabling event because of COVID. And people with long COVID are now experiencing mental and physical challenges and disabilities that we don't know how to reckon with entirely as a society. So one in four is probably an underestimate. It's probably closer to one in three. And I'll pass it to Jill. Thanks, India. Um, it, there was a study done in 2019 that reported 20.4% of adults, and this is in this country only, in the United States, um, experienced chronic pain, and that 7.4% of people uh, had enough pain to limit their lives, and that included their work life. Um, and the numbers go up if you're over 65, as we can imagine. And then they're up even higher if you're uh, a non-white person. And then COVID, of course, has increased this uh, substantially. And a lot of it is underreported. I would say majority of it is underreported because not everybody wants to identify themselves for a variety of familial and cultural uh, reasons with, some, with a disability, having a disability, having chronic pain, having a chronic illness or any kind of condition, um, mental condition, even emotional condition. So uh, we have to know, I think we have to keep in mind and be very sensitive to the fact that we don't see what's going on. I mean, we know that intellectually, but hopefully this today, we're going to even remember this even more. We don't see what's going on behind someone's face all the time or within their bodies. We just don't know. So it's important that we realize that appearance obviously isn't everything and that to check ourselves about assumptions as we go along. So back to you, India. Thanks, Jill. And I want to be explicit that there are many communities that don't frame their experience as disability. That includes some neurodivergent communities, that includes some deaf communities that experience themselves as a language minority, and many other folks. So we want to say that no matter how people identify, when we make our work more inclusive and accessible, we're talking about impacting a great number of people in society. And we feel like that's important. So we wanna also start by explaining what we mean when we are talking about addressing ableism by defining the term ableism. There's lots of definitions out there. I'm just gonna give you a couple. So one of my definitions for ableism is the false notion of a normative body and or mind, emotions, heart, all of that, and the cultural favoritism given to people whose bodies and minds are closest to that norm. So really important here, everyone with a body is impacted by ableism. 
right? The more you deviate from the myth of the normative body, the more ableism you experience. And when I talk about the normative body, take a minute to think about what I might mean when I say that. So a lot of times people will say that someone with two arms and two legs, that's someone who can walk, that's someone with no mental health disabilities, no learning disabilities, that person has 20-20 vision, they don't have any hearing loss. Both of their boobs are the same size. That's what one of my teaching groups <laughs> shared with me, right? Um, which is a myth. They have a symmetrical body, also a myth. Both feet are the same size, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the ways that we deviate from the normative body, we are taught to have shame around. One other definition I'll give here, the late great Stacy Milburn, a disability justice activist and a dear friend of mine, said that ableism is a system of oppression that favors able-bodiedness at any cost, frequently at the expense of people with disabilities. So just a reminder, I know that you've done some work in the cohort around racism. Just like racism, ableism is happening on multiple levels. So it's internalized, it's happening interpersonal with microaggressions and uh, difficult interactions. It's been in institutionalized, it's happening at the institutional level, and it's structural. It's been baked into the fabric of our society and our histories. Right? So in this hour, we're not gonna dismantle all of this. We're just gonna make a little dent and continue to grow from here in our ability to address this. Jill, do you wanna add anything here? Briefly, um, especially on Zoom, which this program is, I think we wanna be a little extra careful about naming body parts that we can't see. So as India was talking about uh, some of the assumptions or what ableism is, when we're guiding people, we may not see their feet. So they may not be on the floor. They may not have feet. Um, people, some people need to lie down or stand up. Uh, obviously there's eyes opened, eyes closed. Some people may need to turn their cameras off. So. Uh, some of the aspects of this, we're going to talk about a little bit more, but it's important, again, to remember that, uh, especially on Zoom, not to make an assumption about someone's body and, and name body parts or the way that somebody should be sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. So... Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think um, we wanted to take a little time to discuss how to relate to this, uh, these concepts of creating accessibility and inclusion um, uh, from the student experience. And I'll turn it to Jill to start us off. Right. You know, we're trying to concurrently hold ourselves as lifelong students. And, and of course, some of you are students in this program now. And as teachers already, or people that are becoming teachers, but from the student's perspective, or the perspective of a student, both in this program and being, you know, I think if you're a teacher, you're a lifelong student. Uh, here are some, there are some things that I thought might be interesting for us to uh, reflect on. And one is that we're, almost all of us are internally critical, right? I mean, 
we can we we hear it, we sense it, we feel it. it it's been conditioned for lo in lots of different reasons for lots of different reasons and in lots of different ways. So it, it's helpful to begin if you well not begin because probably all of us know this, but to really pay attention to harmful inner speech that is supporting what you think you should be able to do in terms of your body. Um, it's helpful not to take these habits of speech personally. So if your body isn't abled in the way that you think it should be, or maybe even that it was, or it used to be, it's important not to take that personally. It's not your fault. And so to really listen to the inner language, to our speech um, is incredibly helpful as a practice and then will be incredibly helpful when you start to teach. Because if we can work with ourselves in this way, with kindness and some patience and, and be in the process, it'll make everything go a little bit more smoothly when we're meeting people that we might not even really understand. So one of the aspects of mindfulness to keep in mind <laughs> is remembering. Uh, you know, mindfulness can allow us, it, it cultivates this ability to track what we're thinking, to track how something starts and how it ends up. And this is so that we can prevent harm, so that we can free ourselves from the things that we do ourselves that are harmful, um, not supportive. And that includes something like speech, but it can also be... Um, things that we do like trying too hard to follow the instructions that we've been given. That's also not always helpful. So we want to remember as much as possible that if we're trying, if we're over efforting because someone is saying, okay, you need to sit like this, or the practice is done just like this. Remember that there's more than one way to practice everything. What we're learning here in the program is a wide variety and there's even more, but it's what we can do together in the time that we have. So if you, a particular practice doesn't feel beneficial to you, talk to your mentor, talk to your spiritual friends, talk to your teacher and experiment with yourself because those experiments are really super helpful. So we, we discover our own variations. Uh, we can play around with the practices as a student, and then subsequently we'll be able to offer this as a teacher. So for instance, loving kindness. Um, loving kindness we've learned mainly through saying phrases, imagining people that we love or people that we might have difficulty with or just beings that we love. It doesn't even have to be a person. Um, and that is a beautiful way to practice loving kindness and compassion. But we can also practice loving kindness and compassion somatically by softening by cultivating this internal space to invite the love, the compassion, and then invite other beings in. So there's lots of different variations on the theme. And sometimes we just need to ask. We mentioned, um, well, no, we haven't mentioned yet. Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. Visualizations are also quite helpful. I said, I mentioned a little bit of visualization in the opening um, practice, but if it helps to visualize something like, you know, you're having trouble with breath, uh, focusing on your breath for physiological reasons, mental, emotional reasons, it doesn't really matter. But for some reasons, rather than throwing it away as a practice, because it, it can show up to be very valuable another time, 
um, you can visualize that you're, what you're breathing in is the breeze coming off of an ocean or the scent from a forest or the clear uh, air at the top of a mountain. Just add a little aspect of visualization on it at first and then drop that and notice the breath as it is. So there's lots of different variations. I'm gonna stop there <laughs> because of our time constraint and pass it over to you, India. Thank you. So Jill and I wanted to address the fact that it is one place that we're working is healing the internalized ableism. And Jill has spoken to some of the ways that you can play with that yourself. And remember, there's still the other levels where ableism is occurring. And I'm going to speak to a few things that you can do in order to shift that interpersonal dynamic and how it's happening systemically or structurally. So it's really important that the onus for shifting our society to be more accessible isn't just placed on disabled people. So non-disabled students um, can be allies or advocates for accessibility. And part of the way that you can train yourself towards that is reading first-person accounts of disabled life, um, of disabled meditators. And make sure that you're doing that intersectionally. By that, I mean that you're reading about disabled BIPOC um, communities. You're reading about disabled genderqueer gender nonconforming and trans folks, right? So that you're getting a diverse set of perspectives around what it is to be a member of a disabled community. You can study their 10 principles of disability justice. You can Google and find them out. And you can study those to help deepen your analysis and your own understanding of what uh, different kinds of disabled communities are fighting for in the justice sphere. And of course, uh, gently encouraging your teachers to become more inclusive. And as you yourselves are becoming teachers, you can start adding more inclusive language and processes to your own teaching. We're actually gonna speak about this next. So again, we're talking about conquering ableism on all of these levels. And we're just giving a few extra pointers to not just work on the internalized piece or the interpersonal piece, but to also be looking at this at the systemic level as well. And with that, I'll pass it back to Jill. Thank you. So uh, you, you can see how we're trying to widen the aperture and then narrow it down to look a little more closely at things. And what I'd like to, to put my our aperture on right now is um, how this can relate to us as teachers. Um, and especially teachers in this program. So I think it's very important. We both feel it's very important. And, and you'll have some um, pointers for you uh, in a little while. But to frame the class in a way that feels safe and open to the most amount of people. Um, one of the things that we can do is just to welcome every body, every heart, and every mind. Um, and offer different resources, depending on who, who is with us or how large the crowd is. We can offer uh, that people can fully close their eyes if they're comfortable with that. Keep the eyes softly cast, cast gaze cast down. These are things that we've already learned in, in the program. But also 
to reiterate and remind that it's okay to stop if something uh, becomes too tender or too difficult um, that you know might not be the right time or the right place to investigate something that you know is there, but uh, maybe not in this context do you want to explore it. Uh, and we all need to be reminded of that because we all want to just get things over with or do it the right way. So we can also um, offer that people can stand to practice. They can lie down to practice. They can move if they need to, and also turn the camera off, depending on what's going on. So we, uh, these are different kinds of things that we can do as resources to, to frame the class, to begin and remind that. I think it's helpful to remind everybody that every time and also offer practice variations. So for instance, if um, breath isn't accessible to someone for physiological reasons, as I was mentioning, or emotional and men mental reasons, then you can suggest that they practice mindfulness of sound. So sound is a, can be uh, an alternative anchor for someone or home base because it's not involved inside. It's more considered coming from the outside. So less about us and more about just listening and receiving. Um, a movement is an interesting uh, thing to, to offer. And I wanna say that movement is internal as well as external. So if you can't move an arm or you don't have an arm, you can imagine moving your arm. You can track it. Most of us through our imagination sense. Uh, so it's important to remember that movement is internal. Just moving your awareness is internal movement. So for instance, if you uh, put your uh, attention on your right hand right now, you might be able to sense something. What is that? That's your awareness. You moved your attention, your awareness, your kind awareness, I'd like to think of it as loving awareness as Jack and Tara call it, to your hand. You sense that, move it around your body. So if you can't physically move, move internally. Um, and then I think it's helpful to remember that we're not gonna know exactly how to meet everybody where they are and we'll make some mistakes. And we can uh, apologize and own it. And we can forgive ourselves and we can learn from it. So um, things like saying, sit with your spine erect or let's sit for instance, which is so common in our community, our meditation community. If you've said that a million times, you might say that again, I still do. And you just remember, and then maybe suggest that we shape or form ourselves around the, um, our inner dignity, you know? So it doesn't really matter what the outside form is looking like or doing. So these are a few suggestions for you. Um, and the last one I wanna um, bring in is that it's very common for us to say, you know, that mindfulness is being present, um, being in the present moment without judgment. That's a pretty common definition that most of us have used or still use. And India pointed to this is that it that non being non-judgmental 
is a process. It's not that easy. And so if we make it almost like a decision, just be judgment, non-judgmental, or make it as, as this is what you need to do, guess what? Especially with these our communities that we're addressing today, there's going to be judgment about not being judgmental. Second arrow, pile it on, pile it on. So let's encourage the cultivation of being non-judgmental. And as teachers, we want to give ways in which we have developed being non-judgmental, kind, start with kindness, and then eventually maybe loving towards ourselves. So those are some reminders. We <laughs> Again, we have lots more, but I'm going to stop there and turn it over to um, India so that we kind of try to stay within our time. <laughs> And um, we created a handout for you all that has a lot of support around language and things that you can start practicing. I see some happy applause about that. <laughs> and, you know, this work requires a lot of cultural humility. And as Jill said, you know, um, you will make mistakes and there's not actually uniform answers. So you might invite somebody into visualizing moving a body part and that really may be offensive to them right? There are some communities who that's not going to be the way in. So some of this is the process of learning yourself and your own biases, and then learning that individual in front of you, and learning about these communities without making assumptions, as Jill has mentioned. So um, a part of that practicing of cultural humility is knowing that you don't have the same lived experience as all of your students. And it's okay to name that. Hey, I'm teaching this class today with those of you who have chronic pain, and that's not my lived experience. And so I wanna learn about that with you, right? Just that kind of truth naming and opening and humility can be so helpful. And that's a reminder that we don't wanna to make too many comparisons that may not resonate for folks. So. Um, although it's human to want to connect, um, the time that you had a sprained ankle or a broken bone is not the same as someone living with chronic pain for 40 years. I have migraines that cause paralysis on a whole half of my body. It's probably not like the headaches you have unless you also have hemiplegic migraine. So really just be careful and mindful of that. You don't need to have had the same experiences as someone to show up with empathy and compassion, right? And it's, it's the more careful you can be about that, the better things tend to go. So I'll give a couple of additional pointers. Um, I really invite folks to practice your offerings, whether that's meditations or movement offerings, whatever it is, in as many positions as are accessible for your body. So if it's accessible for you to do it standing and seated and lying down, try that. If any of those positions are not accessible for you personally, find a student or a classmate to practice teaching while they're in that position. And in a pinch, I use teddy bears or dolls, whatever you got around, because you'll start to discover like, oh, maybe I need to language this slightly differently. Instead of saying, you know, notice what you're sitting on, maybe I'm saying notice where you're connecting to a surface with your body, right? Because different people are connecting to surfaces differently if they're standing or seated or lying down, right? 
At the very beginning, I mentioned access check-ins, and this is a practice from disability justice that I'll offer for you. So when you have time and space, it can be very powerful to invite people to share their access needs. Again, that's anything that's going to make it easier for their participation. And as a teacher or a leader, when you model sharing your own access needs, that can be very powerful uh, experience. So Unfortunately, we still live in a society where teacher is leader, leader has a, a, a hierarchical position, and you are probably trying to break that down in your relationship over time. But what you say really impacts the person in your class or in your meditation group. And so when you give permission, it's really extra powerful. So Everyone actually has access needs. Some people's are more likely to be met than others. So for today, maybe we needed internet and to be somewhere where we're relatively comfortable in temperature. You may or may not have that need met at this moment. These are the kinds of access needs that are likely to be met. Maybe you're like me and you need contacts or glasses to see the screen. If I didn't have these contacts in, y'all wouldn't have any faces, right? Um, so those needs are sometimes met if you have access to money and insurance and sometimes not met um, because of barriers in our society. But maybe you need image descriptions if you're blind. Maybe you need captions or American Sign Language if you're deaf. These are the type of needs that are least likely to be met in a space, right? Whose needs are met are often dictated by capitalism. Does it make the person able to be productive and make money? Can it be achieved cheaply? Can it be done quickly? Those are the kind of access needs we like. The other ones we don't really want to deal with, right? So even if you're someone who says, you know, um, you're non-disabled and there's not a lot of things that you need in addition to internet and a warm space or a comfortable space, I invite people to say, my access needs are met versus saying, I don't have any needs or something like that. And of course, you don't always have time to do an access check-in. Like today, it would have been lovely to do that with you all, but that would have taken all of our time. So when you don't have time to do that in the group, you can add it to your intake form or the process that people use to apply for something. You can invite people to email you that information beforehand to support access. Or sometimes I have what I call an access doula, which might be someone who's there in the space with me who's either a volunteer or a paid position, who is there to support the access of the community, right? All of these things flag to other folks that you care about their access. And it opens up a dialogue so that that inner work that we're doing to heal internalized ableism can help us to be able to speak up in those moments. And we know that this is an environment where someone's going to care when we make that effort. So we could, Jill and I could talk to y'all for eight years about these topics, but we just wanted to give you a few pointers. And I think this is where we'll pause and take some questions from you all. Thanks to you both. 
And I want to just acknowledge a woman, uh, Rebecca or B, who submitted a question. You're from Australia. If you are on the call, I would love to invite you to raise your hand and offer your question. Again, that is B or Rebecca. You sent us a compelling question from Australia. So while we are waiting to see if B is here, I want to go ahead and call on Jerome and ask you to unmute yourself and share your question, please. Thank you, Jill and India for explaining things that we needed to hear. Uh, I, uh, I myself am a survivor of muscle invasive bladder cancer since 1997. And one, two things that kept me going were being my own advocate and being present for whatever was happening. So I wanted to ask you, to what extent did you serve as your own advocate for both of you uh, and, and how you did that and what motivated you to do that? I think these are the two primary issues that people refuse to investigate when they get disabled. They, they uh, and I could go on, but I'll let you please answer the question. Jerome bowing up. Thank you so much for your question, Jerome. Jill, do you want me to go first? Or yes, would you please like to go right ahead. So what you shared is absolutely so true. It's partially why Jill and I spent some time today talking about self-advocacy and what to do when you're a student. Um, I think it's unfortunate, but um, I think if I hadn't become my own advocate, I probably would have died because I wasn't, no one was listening to me. I was blessed and fortunate that my mother was a nurse and she took on some of that advocacy. And then I found community um, that supported doing that advocacy. But often the onus of that is left on disabled people themselves. And that's why I wanna see a shift in society where that's not the case. We're not there yet. And so absolutely, Jerome, that self-advocacy played a critical role in my saving myself to be quite literal, so. And with that, I'll pass to Jill. It's great to see you, Jerome. I, <laughs> Jerome uh, attends our affinity group with regularity and always has really interesting questions and things to say. And I really appreciate this question. And I think for me, it took time. Um, I had to quietly, as quietly as, you know, I could suffer on my own before I insisted on getting, you know, help, further help. Um, I would end up going back to the same doctor over and over again and almost begging for some help. It was humili humiliating. And he, he, that, that particular person that I first started going to was very patronizing. And uh, there was just so much shame in it. But as a, the time continued, 
And I was convinced that this was not in my mind, that I did have an organic issue. I was convinced. I felt that I knew that. Uh, you know, I mean, I was getting questions like, were you abused? That could have been the reason. And, and then, you know, when you're asked these questions over and over again, there, there can be this a little bit of self-doubt. But I did a lot of a lot of self-reflection, a lot of self-reflection. And I thought, no, this is this is organic. This is something. And I kept going back and I kept getting a little louder and a little louder and a little louder. One of the things I didn't say about one of my surgeries was that I had a major surgery. They couldn't really find anything. They took out parts of my organs anyway, but uh, I kept insisting, you know, this is something, this is something, please, please help. And I talked, uh, convinced another, well, it didn't take much convincing because he was a surgeon, but I, I got a surgeon to open me up again. And they found this bizarre thing of part of my intestine herniating my diaphragm and my appendix up next to my heart. No wonder I was in so much pain for so long. So after that, I was still in pain. But at any rate, I had to get to the point in my life where I was mad. I was angry and I needed to be heard that I felt uh, I believed in, in what I was feeling. And I didn't think it was for any reason that I had caused and it was just a matter of saying it over and over again and finding the, the people that would actually listen. This is a launch subject. I think we need to allow ourselves to be angry. I think we need to allow ourselves to grieve. I think we need to allow ourselves to go through this self-doubt. And I really think we need each other. Because if you're doing this in isolation, it's horrible. So spiritual community, mentors, teachers, anyone that uh, knows you or can listen to you without judgment is super, super helpful. But thank you for the question. Thank you for the answers. I, I just wanted to say that for me, that started at the very beginning. When, when I had blood in my urine, I went online to find out what happened. And by the time I had a diagnosis, I knew what within two or three uh, variations, what I actually had, and it turned out, and I had eight recurrences of the same thing, and each time I had to be my own advocate and and not go with the standard medical practice of removing the bladder. So I think it's important to emphasize how much a person of disability has to be their own advocate. Thank you for not bowing up. Thank you so much, Jerome. I'd like to welcome Asuld to offer your question. And please tell me if I mistakenly pronounced your name or I pronounce it incorrectly. Thank you, Christy. It's okay. I say it also, and it doesn't really matter. Thank you for awesome. your kind efforts. Yeah. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you, India. Thank you, Jill. Uh, this is so useful. My question is about Zoom and turning the camera off. For me, that feels a little scary, offering for people to turn it off. Trying to hold the space, create a safe container. For me, partly that is actually seeing people's faces, reading their energies. And so to offering for people to 
kind of go go away feels a little scary. Thank you. That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for naming that. And is it Ashult? But correct me if it's incorrect. Um, so, you know, I, we didn't talk about it today, but sometimes we have conflicting access needs. So you may actually have a need to have folks have their camera on. Um, and then it's a negotiation in the space around what can work for folks. So sometimes um, if you normalize being a human being and you let people know you can lie down, you can walk away. It's okay if your dog or your child comes on screen, um, you can eat if you need to. Then sometimes that makes it so that folks have more bandwidth to have their camera on. Um, in disability justice community, people are often turning their cameras off. And another way that we work with that is to ask people to use emojis or to use um, some other way to stay in communication with us. So for some people, that's really important to be able to turn their camera off. And so that could be a negotiation you're in with that subset of students. And then for some people, given that it's really helpful for you to have that kind of engagement, um, they may be able to keep their cameras on. And that is sort of the, the balancing act that you can be in. So I hope that addressed the question some. I'll just add a little bit because that was an excellent response is that, you know, when, especially those of us that are teaching meditation and generally, whether you're in person or online, you're, you're seeing someone with their eyes closed and being fairly still, we don't read them so much that way anyway. So you must, I, I imagine that you must've wondered, I wonder if they're liking it, where are they, you know, because that doesn't necessarily read. Uh, either in person or online, and and I think I I think uh, it's really important to remember context and that this is a relationship that we're building. So it depends on the context of the class, and it depends on how much you might know someone or not yet. And this is where talking to them and and finding out maybe if they did turn their camera off, why that was helpful for them. So just to 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 inquire. Thank you. for your question. Uh, moving to Trish Garrigan, please. I want to invite you to ask your question. Thank you, Christy. And um, thank you, Jill and India, for sharing your stories and continuing to increase our awareness of all these issues. I think, you know, we can't get enough of learning how to be better humans for each other. Um, and my question is, is around languaging, actually. Um, the term access to me feels a little awkward, and I guess internally I was interpreting it as participation. Is there anything in the way of your participation in this class or something like that? And maybe I, I would just want to understand, is there a certain reason why we should use the word access versus something like participation? So that's... Trish, that's a great question. Thank you for lifting it up. Um, access needs are the way that the disability justice community talks about this process. And of course, uh, finding the language that works for you and the communities you serve is perfectly fine. So if you want to say like, hey, we're going to have a check-in about what helps facilitate everyone's participation, 
Absolutely, or whatever languaging works with the communities that you serve. So that language very specifically comes from disability justice, and there's a reason why that language is preferred in that community, but that doesn't mean it needs to transfer everywhere. Thank you for lifting that up. Thank you. Jill, did you have anything to add to that? You're, you're good. Okay. That was plenty. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Good question. Uh, we've got time for uh, maybe one more. I want to bring Elspeth in and invite you to ask your question, please. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for uh, for doing this and sharing all this information. Um, I was wondering, so this, this comes at a, a really opportune time because um, I am currently staying at a retreat center. And the question came up this morning, um, someone had inquired about bringing a service animal. And um, it was a point of uh, discussion about how to uh, create that accessibility for um, this person and for anyone who um, needs more accessibility here. And uh, and I don't know if maybe this is already shared on the handout that you created, um, but I'm I'm just wondering how um, I guess like are are there some some resources that I myself could access that I could point them toward? Um, what are what are some other ways to kind of um, further this knowledge and further this conversation in order to um, be a better advocate? Thank you for the question. Jill, do you want me to take this one first? Um, so um, service dogs are a very kind of specific case because the law is very clear about that. Um, a service dog has to be given access to a place unless there is um, some safety reason why they cannot be there. That also means that if someone's afraid of dogs or if someone's allergic to dogs, the dog still must be given access and other arrangements have to be made to make sure that um, everyone can be in the space together. Again, that's a conflicting access need moment. So service dogs are sort of a very particular case and um, you can get in big legal hot water around that. So I wanna be really clear <laughs> that that one, there's, it's kind of laid out in the law. Um, that being said, as a service dog handler myself, um, I am a little bit more flexible with how I navigate that. Again, the law says what it says, but, you know, I might bring my crate for my dog. Um, I will make it so that um, we can have an area where the dog goes and the area where the dog doesn't go again to support creating more accessibility. And then sort of towards the general question of like, how do you, uh, what kind of resources you can send folks towards or you yourself can use. Um, there are plenty of great accessibility primers and 
Um, a lot of it, I can send this in to Alicia and maybe it can be added. Um, Sins Invalid has put out several kind of accessibility primers that are useful. Leah and Stacy, who are disability justice folks, just put out some a, a new kind of um, audit tool for institutions and organizations to use um, with the principles of disability justice to think about access. So plenty of kind of primers out there, largely coming from that arena, that can be really helpful. Um, so I'll pause there and see what Jill wants to add. No, I think that that's great. And uh, uh, I, the only other thing I might add is just to find, uh, are you um, privy to what the retreat managers or um, bylaws are? Is are you, Elspeth, uh, do you, are you wanting to inform yourself or also the retreat center? You wanna turn your mic on? <laughs> okay, let's try that. Um, uh, both, I mean, I of okay. course would love to educate myself as, um, as someone who is going to be uh, teaching and facilitating in the future. Right. Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, I mean, I'm not sure, but there may be other places where I go into and, uh, and, and also, um, feel or see kind of a need for someone to kind of advocate for right. greater right. accessibility. And so, um, uh, yeah, so this, this is something I'd like to create further awareness for myself and yeah. for other organizations that I may be involved in. Yeah. In Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, the first, obviously the first step, as you very well know and said, is to educate ourselves and just be continually educating ourselves. Yeah, India just mentioned there are new things that are coming out by some of the people that she uh, pointed at or pointed towards. And, um, and also maybe to join a board. If it's, a, if it's a, a retreat center that you go to a lot, maybe your advisory or maybe you join the board or you get involved in a way so that your voice can be kindly heard and what you know might be more welcome. So I think it's just a matter of uh, picking where you want to, how you can be involved in, in the atmosphere or the environment or the laws of a retreat place um, and, and seeing what they might be open to. And a lot of times they're more open to uh, your voice being heard if you're part of their community and really want to become more active. So that's what I would suggest. Thank you. Thank you, Elspeth. And Jill, I wonder if you have a practice or something to close us out with now that yeah. we're at time. Yeah. yeah. And I want to just say that we, we got a few questions that are really good. And I'm sure, you know, maybe there are a lot more and um, may we continue to support each other so you know where you can find us. And uh, we want to be found <laughs> and we want to be of support. So may that continue. And to close, let's uh, 
settle as much as we would like. And I'd like to offer that you can continue to look at the screen and maybe make this part of this particular ending, this particular closing practice, if you'd like, or you're welcome to cast your gaze down, or you're also welcome to fully close your eyes, whatever you'd like to practice. I think uh, it's important for us to honor how we're all in this together. And especially as part of this program, breaking different kinds of ground in bringing these practices to more and more diverse and um, worldwide communities. This is very intentional. You're part of that. And so each of us in our own practices is experimenting and finding what works well, what doesn't work so well yet, learning, asking, reflecting. And whatever the merits or the benefits of our practices are for us right now, it's also important that we share them with all sentient beings, both in person and through teaching and facilitating, but also energetically. It works, it moves the world, just like the monarch butterflies who can change the weather across the planet. Our wishes, our thoughts, our um, prayers, whatever is helpful for you to think of them as, will be felt around the world. So let's just take a moment to send the blessings or share the blessings or the benefits of our practices out all around the universe. Thank each and every one of you for joining us today and, and beginning this conversation and uh, understanding with us. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Christy. Thank you, everyone.